weeks, we've been looking at the message of the cross. And we've been looking at, about how important the cross is, significant it is. We talked about all kind of a cultural view of the cross and how oftentimes it's looked at as a trinket, uh, as an ornament, as a decorative item. Uh, but we were reviewing uh, the history of the cross and how it came into being and how it was looked to be a severe execution device that was not even used upon those governing agents at that particular time except on slaves or tree, uh, traitors. And so um, we think about the cross. It was a horrible way to die. It could take days in which a person's life would expire. But you know, um, Jesus went to the cross. And for the last couple of weeks we had talked about how important the cross meant and what it meant theologically. We looked, first of all, with First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, 18, and talked about how the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness, and for those of us who are being saved, it is the work in the, in the hand of God in our lives. We've also seen in John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, the power of the cross, and the power of the cross we discovered was love last week. So today we're going to be looking at the proof of the cross. The proof of the cross. We've seen the message of the cross, the power of the cross, and today we'll be looking at the proof of the cross. And so you know I kind of like definitions of things, so I want to give you a definition of the word proof. It's a collection of evidence that compels our understanding of truth. It is a collection of evidence that compels our understanding of truth. So the context we see in the scripture this morning is taken out of John chapter 20, uh, we'll be looking at a couple of verses, but the key text will be found in verses 26 and following. But in the meantime, we see that in John chapter 20, verse 19, we discover, When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. This is an amazing verse. I want you to take a very close look at this four-letter word, um, because it sets the time parameters. We see that it was an evening on that day. What day is being referred to? Yes, it's the first day of the week. This is the first Easter. This is the evening of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, everything is very, very fresh, and we can see the text of all this, and how important it is that we recognize that this is Resurrection Sunday. The Bible says that they were gathered in fear, you see, the news of the missing body of Christ has spread very, very quickly in Jerusalem. There was a, there, the fear of the opinion that this movement that was caused by this one who was called the Christ must be put to an end. And so the disciples were there in this upper room thinking, if they were willing to kill our Messiah, our Lord, our Christ, we have to be looking over our shoulder because there's a possibility that our lives might end today. No wonder they were afraid and they were gathered in that upper room. And Jesus came and he said, peace be with you. And then he gave some instruction that their ministry must continue that has been handed off to them. And that it would receive the Holy Spirit. But we discover something very interesting in verse 24. That um, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, by the way, Didymus is meaning twin, okay, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. 
So he says, unless I experience these things, I will not come to faith. I will not come to this belief. We didn't understand that the Apostle Thomas was a realist. And he was a skeptic. It's interesting as we think about the twelve disciples, that each one had a unique personality and a whole different outlook on life and a, and a whole different understanding of what ministry was all about. And we see just a bit about Thomas. You know he hurt Mary Magdalene he, when she came in and she talked to the disciples when she said, I saw him alive outside of the tomb. Thomas heard that proclamation. Thomas also knew that Jesus died on the cross. That's why he had that reference in saying, unless I touch those wounds in his hand, and unless I put my hand into that sore or that, that lance wound in his side, I will not believe. So he knew, he saw what had taken place in Jesus' life and ministry. Now that brings us to our scripture today. John chapter 20, verse 26 through 29. The Bible says, after eight days again, his disciples were inside. Thomas was with them. No. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are they who do not see me, did not see me, and yet believed. We understand that Jesus showed up eight days later. I would imagine the conversation that these disciples had with Thomas. They've been spending the last eight days talking about, We saw him. We saw the wounds. We heard his voice. He gave us some direction. Certainly, he was there. But Thomas was now in their midst on that day, and the Bible says he appeared. We don't see this in the original or in the original language, but it is stated that he suddenly appeared. The doors were locked. There was no other entrance. He didn't come through a window. He just stepped right into their time and into their space. And he said this. It's very interesting. He says, peace be with you. Now, this is a salutation on a meeting. So basically... He's saying to them, every good thing, we bring it to our verbiage, to our time, in our society, we, we would say that Jesus came into the room and said this, hey, how's it going? Jesus showed up. They needed to hear this peace pronouncement from Jesus. Because they were facing trouble, and their wives were facing unrest. They were upside down. They were greatly disturbed. They were probably asking themselves, after all these, this time that they spent with Jesus ministering to in the Palestine area, they probably asked themselves, what are they going to do now? What's going to happen? What does all this mean? We can understand their confusion as we see into the Scripture. Did everything come to a close? And now here is Jesus. And he said to Thomas, Touch me. No pain. See the wounds. The nail scars. The pierced side. I think it's very interesting. Jesus is so not like us. He didn't chide Thomas. 
He didn't talk down to him. Rather, he encouraged him. He didn't say, are you so slow? He didn't say, how come you didn't believe your friends? He didn't say, didn't I tell you three times before we went into Jerusalem that this is going to happen to me? I find it very interesting that Jesus quotes Thomas' request back to Thomas. So it leads us to think about something for a moment. Did Jesus hear what Thomas had to say in regard to his existence? Of course he did. I want to remind us. Jesus listens to what we say. He hears how we remark to one another. And I think it's funny how things have a tendency to come back to us, the very things that we say. The very things that Peter, excuse me, that Thomas said about Jesus. And Jesus just reminded him. Jesus wants us to see for ourselves. We see the context in this room. We see that Jesus approaches the doubt. We see that Jesus wants us to see for ourselves. You see, he wants us to have the personal application and understanding. This must have been a reminder about all this ministry thing that took place in Thomas's life. All the lives, all the stories, all the conversations, all the times that he spent with Jesus. It must have all clicked. It must have all made sense in, in just that moment. He must have had that, I get it now. That, that panorama now, it's all just coming into place. It's kind of like when we were in math class, maybe in junior high and high school. When we're sitting there learning about geometry and algebra and calculus and we're wondering, are we ever going to get this? Am I ever going to understand? Then all of a sudden we have that aha moment. It's like, it all comes together. It all makes sense now. I see this. I remember years ago, I was working on the 757 program at Boeing. And somebody had wrote a suggestion way down the line on the assembly, and it came back to me, and it was given to me this huge assembly tool. And with a plethora of parts in a box, and a stack of drawings that are this high. <laughs> and in order to assemble this particular airplane part, I would have to understand the looking down view, the right view, the left view, and then the front view of what this part looks like. And it wasn't on just one drawing. It was multi-dimensional, and it required many sheets of many drawings that have special insight into inserting an angle for a part. And so I'm looking at all these things, and it's just making no sense to me at all. So I went to my supervisor, and I said, look at this, this assembly, with the, uh, this assembly tool. It was as big as a piano. And I was to build this thing with 112 parts. And it doesn't make sense when I look at all of these drawings. The multi-dimensionality of this airplane part was very, very confusing to me. And he says, Craig, let's do something. Let's go over to the assembly building where that part has been loaded upon the 757. And so we went over there and crawled into the cargo department or compartment of the 757 and look, there was the part. And it's like, okay, I get it now. 
And so I went back to that assembly. They call it an assembly jig. I went back to that assembly jig and was able to put that part together. Why? Because I had an understanding of what it was supposed to look like. So when Jesus showed up with the wounds, and he encouraged Thomas to witness his wounds, and then all of a sudden it all made sense, it all came together, how important the resurrection and the cross was. A significant point, a significant time. It was proof to the reality. And he came to the conclusion. Jesus says this, Do not be unbelieving, but believe. You see, the resurrection is vital to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. In fact, we cannot have saving faith in Christ unless we believe in the resurrection. Do you understand? Amen. It's vital that we grasp this truth. Jesus wants us to know that the price was paid and that His coming to us was proving the point. His bringing validation. So Jesus confirms our conclusions. So we see what Thomas had to say. He said, My Lord and my God. My Lord. My Lord. This word my is significant. I'm going to make up a word. Okay? Because I can do that today. This word my, and this made-up word, is ownership. There is this owning in this relationship. It wasn't a casual conversation, but it was owning the closeness and the reality of who Jesus is. What Thomas is saying here is this, in this ownership, I am His. And He is mine. My Lord. My Lord. Lord means authority. It means master. It means leader. The ownership that I am His and He is mine means that Jesus is the ruler of His heart. So what he is saying here by saying that he is my Lord, he is saying I no longer live for myself, but rather the one who is Lord over my heart. When we became a Christian, we gave up our life. We don't belong to ourselves. Jesus said repeatedly, those who want to save their lives will lose it. If you see the blog that is in the website this week, is the very thing that I wrote about. Because the fact is, is that we try to hang on to our lives, we will lose the very significance of the things that we think are important. But when we lose ourselves in Christ, we find the very reason and the purpose of our existence. And we can say, my Lord, my Lord. He says, my Lord and my God. The ownership of God. This word God, Greek word is theos. Theos is a significant word because it tells us the recognition and the understanding of the mind and the character and the purpose and the presence of God. Big word, right? That 
I'm paper wrestling. <laughs> so somewhere along the line is it Thomas said that he is my Lord, but he is God, my God. In fact, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 5, when he said, My Lord and my God, I know it's all these good Jewish men who were hearing what he had to say were reminded of the Shema. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and with all your soul and with all your might. Do you see how significant it is when Jesus said, when Thomas said to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, it was a reflection of not only ownership and uh, ownership in all this situation, but he recognized how important this was. In fact, let me share this with you. If you're going to write something down. (laughs) My Lord and my God is the highest declaration a Christian can make. Do you hear that? When we look at the cross and we realize who Jesus is, when we say that He is my Lord and my God, it is the highest declaration a Christian can make. And we see this rhetorical question. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. <clears throat> Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This rhetorical question sets up the faith for others in the future. Now listen. Future believers would base their understanding and belief on the faithful message transmitted by witnesses. Do you hear me? Future believers will base their understanding and belief on the faithful faithful message transmitted by witnesses. A witness. Let me tell you about a gentleman I knew by the name of Steve. Steve was always looking for proof. And I, and I told Steve, I said, you know, our faith is our faith, and proof is significant. But first of all, we must believe. He says, well, I would love to believe, but I have to have evidence. And I said, the evidence comes after we believe. He hesitated from becoming a Christian. I, I told him the plan of salvation, how we confess our sins and we believe in Christ and we give our lives. We receive our, uh, salvation and then from that day on we live for God. I told him this. He says, I, I, I wish there was just something more. I wish there was something more. I said, this all this. You see, Jesus doesn't, he's not obligated to do a miracle for all of us. And so I went to see his house one day, and we were talking back and forth, and he was into hang glider when it was really big years ago. And we were in Kashmir, and he showed this far-off mountain. He says, that is the most beautiful place to launch off at a hang glider. You can see for miles. You can all see Lake Shwan as well as you can see Wenatchee. It's just a beautiful place to see. And we talked about that for a while. And he says, you know, do you want to go up there sometime? I said, sure. What about tomorrow morning? And Steve said, yeah, let's go. And so he picked me up in his Volkswagen station wagon. It was red. Dusty, windy road, dry as can be in the summertime, beautiful blue day, blue sky day, 
wonderful place to be. We get out of the Volkswagen, and he says, we've got to go up this trail. And I'm talking to him more about the Lord. He says, if I could just see a sign. If I could just know. I believe. And I said, you've got to believe in faith. And he says, you know, I'm coming under the conviction that I, I, I need Christ in my life. And so we prayed the sinner's prayer, and he got saved on this trail going up to the top of this mountain. And we're walking along, and we went over this little ridge, and halfway up, we looked on top of the hill, and you know what we saw? A cross. Mm. Somebody had erected a cross. It said, there's your sign. There's your sign. And so here is Thomas saying, listen, unless I can put my finger in his side and my hand into his finger into his wounds and his my hand into his side, I will believe. But then when Thomas came to the realization that the Lord is Lord and that he is God, his life changed. Steve's life changed too. Blessed. He says, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. This word blessed is an interesting word. It means not happy, not joyous, but congratulations. Jesus is saying, congratulations are given to those who did not see yet have believed. Congratulations, because of those who witnessed firsthand the unseen reality of the resurrected Lord. Congratulations, you saw Congratulations, you believed. Congratulations, you've received. Congratulations. A celebration. Well done. Proof. Proof is the collection of evidence that compels our understanding of truth. Now let me close. We have the Bible witness. We have the Bible witness of the reality of the resurrection. Let's see 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after he appeared to more than 500 brethren, at one time most of whom remain until now, but some had fallen asleep. He, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So the proof we see of the resurrection, we, prove that we see that Jesus was made himself present was in the lives of all these people that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And I have a question. Is there other information besides the Bible that verifies the resurrection and the significance of Jesus Christ? Josephus is a first century Jewish historian. In the book of Antiquities, 18, chapter 3, verse 3, it says this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if he could lawful to, uh, to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, 
Those that loved Him at first did not forsake Him, for He appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these 10,000 other wonderful things concerning Him. And the tribe of Christians so named from Him are not extinct to this day. A Jewish historian in the first century. But what do we do with a pagan historian? What do we do with this historian and political Tacitus. He was a Roman historian. In his book, Annals, book 15, chapter 44, this is what he has to say. Now he's referring to Nero in the persecution of the Christians after the burning of Rome. Now listen to what Tacitus says. But all human effort, all the lavish, lavish gifts of the emperor, and their propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. That, that this is the persecution for Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a hated class for their abominations called the Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name, that's Latin, for whom the name that is uh, its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the, ten, uh, the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, a most, and a most mischievous superstition. What does Tacitus say? The mischievous superstition is the faith in Jesus Christ, a man, a Lord, a miracle worker, a truth teller, one who was crucified, and one later who came back from the dead and was viewed as superstition. This is what history has told us. These are the proofs that we deal with. These are just two historians. The mischievous superstitions. Interesting. The gospel. So what do we do with the proof of the cross? I think it's interesting. When there's genuine doubt, Jesus shows up. When there's genuine doubt, He doesn't chide us. He reminds us. And he affirms to us. And then he confirms the truth that we conclude. He is my Lord and my God. So please do not let our circumstances confuse our confidence. You may wonder, does God care? Is he aloof? Is he powerless? Why am I going through all that I do? Don't let these things confuse our confidence in Him. Jesus wants us to see for ourselves. It says in Deuteronomy, if you seek for God with all of your heart, He can be found. He wants us to see for ourselves. How many of us, before we came to know Christ, were resting our salvation and our hope of our loved ones that they had a relationship with Jesus? Jesus wants us to see Him. I have a question. 
We say He is our Lord and our God. Can we say that He can be God and not Lord? Remember we say about the ownership, He is mine and I am His. So it's the faithful witness of Thomas and all the other disciples that have led us to salvation. The faithful witness. No one would die for a lie, but Thomas did, who was later martyred. So I would say this. Discover the proof of the Christ and the cross ourselves. You know, years ago, we took a vacation down to uh, Southern California, and we went to Knott's Berry Farm. And I remember going there, and there was a place where you could get a pan, and there was a small little creek that ran through this portion of the amusement park. And in that creek was sand, and the bottom of that creek, supposedly, there was gold. And you could take this pan, and you could go down there, and you could pan for this gold, Hopefully find something. And you know you would. You see the little tiny fine flakes of gold. And they were put in a little tiny vial. And I had it for years and years and years. And as a kid, you know, we lose everything. <laughs> After Mount St. Helens went off, we didn't have the hunting grounds that we used to up around Randall and Pathway because they were just destroyed. But we had an opportunity to hunt in areas that we never hunted before. And so we went up toward Blue Pass, and there was a creek that runs down Blue Pass, and then we went up above North Bend and some different areas. We didn't see any deer, no tracks, no anything, but there were cricks there. And for some reason, Mom had bought a gold pan, you know, she was always that treasure hunter kind of person. And so Kim and I went down to this river that was up above North Bend, and we started panning, and you know something? We found some plugs. <laughs> You know, to go to Knott's Berry Farm and to, to pan in a creek, a man-made creek, and been peppered with a little bit of gold, was far different than actually going out in the wilderness and find gold for yourself. But let me challenge you today. So here I am, here we are. I give to you what I've learned, but let me encourage you to discover for yourself the significance and the proof and the wonder of Jesus Christ. So today, we're learning growing, sharing. It's part of the plan. We'll be faithful. So let's all stand. We'll close the word.